right. Hey, take your Bibles, turn to John 21. That's where we're going to be, continue the series. Uh, we're part four of five. It'll wrap up next week. Chronicles of uh, an Average Joe, and our Average Joe is actually the Apostle Peter. And um, we're going to be in John 21 today. We want to say hello to the Hendersonville campus, the East Campus, Franklin Campus as well. And West Campus, you guys are dispersed in different places as we look forward to uh, uh, opening up that one over there in the Candler area. Some probably at the end of January, 1st of February, all right? So thanks for being flexible, hanging in there. And so again, John 21 is where we're going to be. Uh, 2012, you had a couple of storms from different parts of the globe that converged together, all right? Uh, you had uh, a hurricane down the Caribbean. And the thing was swirling and swirling and then it made its way up and it was going up and it stayed actually off of the uh, East Coast for a number of days, just strengthening and getting bigger. And at the same time, you had up in Canada, you had what they call a nor'easter, all right? And so what happened is that thing just gained strength, gained strength. And then right before Halloween in 2012, these two things came together, the hurricane and this nor'easter. They came together to make what they initially called the Frankenstorm, all right? And what it was, it was this huge convergence where you had blizzard and snow out conditions. And at the same time, you had 80 mile an hour winds, you had waves just crashing in. And they ended up calling it obviously Superstorm Sandy. This thing caused like $60 billion of damage, 120 25 people lost their lives. And what you had is, again, it's not just one storm, not just two, but you had, you had these two that came together to make this super storm. All that to say, and I know some of y'all spent some time in John 21 this week, because I kind of semi-fooled you last week to say, hey, use that chapter using the H-E-A-R method. But in John 21, what you see is you see the way that God deals with two storms that are in our life that often, they're not the same, but they oftentimes converge and they are most definitely uh, at our campuses today. And it's one of them is the storm of regret and the other one is the storm of shame. And they are not the same, but they go together. Regret is, you know what, I messed up. I would do it differently if I could do it over again. I, I wish I hadn't either hadn't have done that or I wish I had have done that. That's the regret. Usually it's a point in time that you can identify. But what happens is that if you don't know how to let God redeem the regrets that you have, that can easily turn into another one that is an internal tag team kind of storm, and that is called shame. Shame is not so much about that one thing that happened or that one decision or that one mess up that you did. It's really the fact that you never learned how do I deal with regrets or more importantly, how does God deal with the big mess ups in my life? And what happens is that begins to be not just part of your activity that you did, but it ends up being part of your identity, the core of who you are. That's who I am. That's who I am. And it affects everything. And the problem with both of those is there's not anybody today that can't honestly say, man, I have messed up and I've messed up some big time. Now, again, I know we're at church and like, I don't want to admit what I've done and we're not having a confessional right now, but anybody with a scintilla of honesty would say, there is at least one time where I have messed up big time in my life. And here's the problem. If you don't know how to let God redeem the regrets that you have, your Christian life even is just going to be like this the whole time. Just roller coaster, ups, downs, ups and downs, ups and downs. And so I don't know what that is, but here's some ones that just come across my desk. Somebody, you know, you get caught in a lie, you say one thing, and then all of a sudden it comes out, you know what, you were lying, and all of a sudden you're embarrassed in front of everybody. 
We got folks that are listening to me. You've been caught in an affair. All of a sudden you were cheating on your vows. You were cheating on your spouse and you thought nobody would find out. And then boom, it just explodes. And you can look back and you're like, that was the defining thing in my life. Others of you are like, you know, I told the Lord I would never do this again. I would never get drunk again. I would always stop here. I would never do that. And the next thing you knew, you're like, you just got blackout wasted. And you're like, I, I don't know what I did, what I said. And it's causing great regret and great shame. Other times you might've just lost your temper after you've been at work and you've been there for three years and you've been praying for your coworkers and you've been witnessing and you've been inviting them to online church and hey, we're even having like RSVP, so come to church. I might be sitting beside you today and all of a sudden that uh, you lose your temper and all of a sudden you see three years of praying and plowing and trying and ministry. It's like, that's gone. How do I get that back? And so uh, the reason that that's super duper important is because we've all been there and it's actually in some ways what you see in the last chapter of John's gospel. Now, to be blunt, when you read the gospel of John, you get to chapter 20 and it looks like the end of the story. It's like the end, the perfect ending of a perfect story. In 60 seconds, here's the gospel of John. Gospel of John starts off in John 1, says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then it goes to chapter two. It talks about a miracle that Jesus did of all things at a wedding. Then you fast forward a couple of chapters and you see him with the woman at the well and the way that he showed grace to people who were nothing like him at all. And then he goes into a section where he's talking about teaching this and teaching that and showing that. And then in around chapter 13 or 14, he starts to really hone in. This is the reason that I came. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And then what happens is he gets arrested, he gets uh, tried, he gets flogged, he gets uh, crucified, he gets buried, and then miraculously, three days later, he rises from the tomb. And then he shows himself to his disciples, even the ones that doubted, like Thomas. There's one guy that, for the most part, is somewhat conspicuously absent from some of those resurrection appearances, and it's our boy Peter. Peter showed up to the empty tomb, but the last real sighting of Peter was at his biggest point of failure. So John ends chapter 20, he's like, it's the perfect ending. And it's like a movie when you go to a movie and the movie ends and people get up out of their seats and they're start ready to leave. And then all of a sudden something comes on the screen again. It's like, oh, movie's not quite over yet. That's because Peter's story is not quite over yet. And that's because your story's not quite over yet. And what you see in Peter's story, the reason Peter is so relatable to us because Peter's story is your story. Whether you know it or not, you have blown it, you will blow it, you will blow it again. The question is, what do you do when that happens? So I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna give you chapter 21, verse one, catch you up, and then we're gonna go to a conversation that Jesus wants to have with you and Jesus had with Peter 2,000 years ago. Here's verse one of chapter one. After this, this is pretty key. After what? What has happened? That's, we're going to do a quick flyby in a second. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, another name for the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Well, what is the this? I know we have a wide background. I grew up in church. I didn't grow up in church. First time, whatever that is. Here's again a quick 10,000 foot view because we've got to back up in Peter's story. Peter's the gung-ho disciple. Peter is the brash, bold, 
confident, even cocky. He's that disciple. He's the one that's like, man, I, I, if you want to be in a foxhole with somebody, I'm your man. If nobody else is left fighting for you, Jesus, I am your man. Even when Jesus tells his disciples, all of you all are going to forsake me. Peter's the one that sort of flexes and like, I won't leave you. These losers might forsake you. I'm not like them at all. And, um, by the way, before we get too difficult on Peter, you ever say anything similar to, to God like that? Jesus, I promise I will never do that again. Or God, I promise I will always do this. And amazingly, uh, Peter is told by Jesus, you know what, Peter? Not only will you deny me, you're worse than all these guys. You will actually deny me three times before the rooster crows in the morning. And Peter's life unfolds exactly like Jesus said it would. During the trials, they look over. He denies him for the third time. He's sitting there by some middle school girls by a campfire and warming his hands by a charcoal fire. We'll come back to that. He's warming his hands like, do you know the man? I don't know the man. Second time, do you know the man? I don't know who he is. Do you know the man? I don't know the blankety blankety man. And he calls down curses on himself. And then the rooster crows. Chances are, if you're honest at all, you've heard the rooster crow in your life a few times as well. It's like, ah. If you don't know how to deal with that, if you don't know how to deal with regret and shame, because Peter failed Jesus in the worst possible way, and then he goes out and it says, the Bible says he, he says he wept bitterly. So you get to John 21, and here's what happens. And I'll get you caught up to verse 15, and that's where we'll dive in. So chapter 21, you're about 70 miles from the failure. Peter has gone fishing. That's what he did before he met Jesus. That's the way he kind of went back to his pre-Jesus life. He goes in there and he goes fishing. So a few verses in, they, they've heard, you know, he's heard about the resurrected Christ and a lot of stuff has been going on. But bottom line is he's out there fishing. Some guy on the shore, it's like, hey, how's your fishing going? Well, they hadn't caught anything all night. So he actually says, little children, how's the fishing going? Which is kind of like, I mean, it's not like a super, I mean, I mean it's like asking a football team after they just get beat 38 to nothing. Hey, did you win? It's like, no. Hey, here's a thought. Why don't you try passing or tackling? Because that's what he says. He goes, hey, take your net. Why don't you throw it on the right side of the boat? Oh, yeah. Like, that's going to make a difference. But they throw it on the right side. Boom. Massive catch of fish. Peter and the disciples realize that's Jesus. Peter jumps out of the boat and swims to shore and the conversation with Jesus begins. Here's the way it goes. When they had finished breakfast, because Jesus cooked breakfast for him, he actually says, bring your fish. But if you look carefully at the text, he says, bring your fish, but he already had breakfast for him. It's like Jesus doesn't need or stinking fish. Or he already had it ready. But when they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. When you blow it, whether it be big or small, the first thing that is a proper response is this right here. It is remorse. Now, I know we live in a time of you know, don't feel bad. Don't, don't let that stuff, don't feel bad. Just believe in you. 
You've got to understand if you're a Christ follower, remorse after you blow it is a proper way to respond. Now, I know some of you are thinking, it's like, man, I was reading that this week and I was like, Jesus is like really, you know, kind of putting screws to Peter here because he's bringing up his failure real specifically. If you didn't catch it, there's at least four ways Jesus actually is trying to get Peter to remember how he failed. And you're like, why would he do that? Is he being cruel? We're going to come back. He's actually being amazingly tender. First thing is he says he had a charcoal fire. The word charcoal, looked it up this week. Charcoal is used two times in the New Testament, both of them in reference to a situation with Peter. The first one, why he's warming his hands before he denies him. And the second one, right here, right here. You ever been somewhere where like a smell or a sound or a, something brings back something from your previous, you know, previous years? I mean, some of you guys played, might've played football and you know, your son's playing football and you make your way in there for like a locker room devotional or something and you smell the stench of a football locker room and, it, and you're like, man, it brings me back to a previous time. So maybe you got serious radio or whatever and you got 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever you got on your favorite channel and you hear some song, you hear some song from the previous time. Actually, I was having lunch with Lori yesterday and that song from the Bee Gees came on called uh, Staying Alive. I threw up a little bit way in the back of my mouth, just a little bit, but it brought me back to a time. I was like, that, that reminds me of a time. So he's doing that. Hey, I'm gonna bring you, I'm gonna put you by fire just like you were when you denied me. A couple of y'all emailed me this week. It's like, why did he call him Simon? Why did he call him Simon? I thought he was Peter. He gave him a new name, but notice he did. He said, Simon, son of John. You know what Simon means? Simon is how Jesus found him. That was Simon, that was his name, but Simon means reed. It's like a piece of grass that blows in the wind. When Jesus renamed him Peter, Peter means rock. It's like, you know what? This is what you're gonna be in me. Without me, this is who you are, you're Simon. And you can't help but notice that he asked him in this text three times, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? Now listen, Pete, Jesus does not ask questions for information. He's gonna ask questions for revelation. He wants to reveal something to you when he asks you a question. And he's wanting Peter to think, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me more than these? And do you love me more than these? Did you notice that? And some commentators say that these are the nets and the fish and the, what, you know, the boats. That's, I don't really think that's it. And I'm not trying to be like bulldogmatic about this because the Bible doesn't clearly say, but if you look at the context, it's pretty obvious that he's talking about, do you love me more than these? Because there's no place here where it says that he took Peter and took him off by himself. He wanted them to hear it. Later on, he still compared himself to John. Do you love me more than these? You know why? Remember what Peter had boasted? Peter says, you know what? Quote, if all of these leave you, I won't. And he's saying, hey, Peter, how's that boast coming now? How's that working out for you now? And one of the things we've got, you're like, that, that just seems, that seems harsh. That seems unloving. Why would he do this? You and I have to understand the core of the gospel from Jesus's perspective and just understanding it, the core of the gospel is Jesus can say, I can't count on you, but the good news is you can count on me. The core of the gospel is you're not going to come through, but I already came through. The core of the gospel is you're going to fail me. I am not going to fail you. The gospel is not, look what a great little disciple I am. 
The core of the gospel is, Peter, I knew you already. I knew your failure. I knew that was going to happen. And here's, the, here's the part you got to understand. When you're confronted with your sin, remorse is the first step back to God's grace. It's not rationalization. It's not rationalization. Rationalization is just kind of that, you know, uh, kind of that excuse making, uh, you know, I'm not hurting anyone. Uh, you know what? Uh, boys will be boys. That's not, that's not it. That's rationalization. It's not justification. Justification is it's not my fault. It's my wife's fault. It's my husband's fault. It's my coach's fault. It's my boss's fault. That's just rationalization. And we come by that naturally. I mean, think about Adam. Remember when God's in the garden in the very first chapters of the Bible? Adam, where are you? Where are you? What is he doing? He's not talking about, God does not need a GPS system to find Adam. He's doing the same thing to Peter. Where are you? Where are you? And what does Peter, or what does Adam usually say? Or what does he eventually say? The woman who you gave me. So he blames not only the woman, and we husbands are still doing that, the woman but he blames God, you gave me. That's just rationalization. And what you see here is the questions that Jesus asked, he already knows the answer to. And here's what he wants us to do. He wants us to be honest with ourselves. He wants us to be honest with ourselves. At the beginning of God redeeming those things, be honest with yourself. Do you seriously think that he didn't know if the disciples had caught fish or not? Of course he knew. Of course he knew that they hadn't. But he's like, hey, how is fishing going for you? In the same way he can ask us, hey, how's that relationship that I told you would lead down a bad road, how's that going for you? Is that really filling the hole in your soul that you thought would happen? Hey, how is that, how are you waking up in the morning feeling on that? It's like, you know what, I feel cheap, I feel used. It's not doing what I thought it would do. He's saying, look in the mirror and it's okay to have remorse. Fortunately, it does not end there because here's what he goes in verse 16. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, this is where you're like, man, I mean, if somebody keeps asking you a question and you keep telling them the answer and they keep asking you the question, at some point you're like, don't you hear me? I'm telling you something. But again, what you see is you start to see Peter's heart tenderizing a little bit. And that's what he wants to happen this morning. Instead of like, it's not about me and it's not about my ex, it's about you. It's about God's love for you. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. It's a great word. It's actually a word that talks about the loss of a family member. Do you love me? And here's what you got to, don't miss this one. Do you love me? And he said to him, listen to this, Lord you know everything. Lord, you know everything. That doesn't want to, that's not really what it sounded like, you know, a few days before when you're like, all these other bozos, they're going to leave you. But you don't know what you're talking about. I'm strong. And, he's, and he finally, this is the words of surrender. This is the word of confession. This is the word actually leading to repentance. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Peter did. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So remorse, if all you do is stay in remorse, remorse without redemption on the back end does turn into shame. You understand that? If you don't know what to do, because guilt is, there's real guilt and there's false guilt, right? Real guilt, God, 
God can use guilt to bring you to the fact that, you know what, Jesus took your guilt on the cross. But if all guilt does is stay there, it does eventually turn into shame. And so remorse is actually supposed to lead us to this second thing that's misunderstood, and that is repentance. Repentance. Now, I know if you're new to church, you're thinking, all right, man, I th- you invited me here and you told me this guy was funny, and he's not funny at all, all right? He's like the guy I saw down at the drum circle saying, repent for the end is near. Understand what repent means. Repentance is not a bad word. It is in so many ways the funnel that God uses to pour out grace into our lives. And you see it in Peter's life. With repentance, look how he says, it says he was grieved. It means sorrowful, it means emotional. It's the idea of an inside change that's going on. It's almost like, you know, you know everything. You know everything. This is not, this is not the classic, I'm sorry if you were hurt, Lord. I mean, isn't that what, that's what's cool today is today it's like, you know what? I'm sorry if I offended you, which is like a, not even an apology. Imagine if Peter's like, well, I'm sorry if it hurts your feelings that I abandoned you in your biggest time of need. In other words, he's saying, Jesus, I mean, toughen up a little bit. I mean, it was just a cross. It's almost like it'd be. It's the same way we do in marriage sometimes. Same way we do, I'm sorry if I offended you. In other words, buckle up, buttercup, and you would not be so hurt. It's not what he said. That's not even an apology. What repentance is and what you see in Peter's life is he's like, I'm starting to see things from your perspective. We talk about this all the time and we use this definition all the time. Repentance, biblical repentance, is a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior, okay? I'm not talking about repentance leads to perfection. It does not. Repentance does not lead to perfection. Repentance, though, is a change of direction. It is. It doesn't mean that I... I didn't mean it if there was like, if I messed up again six months later, but here's the bottom line. If there's true repentance, then the gap, the gap between failures is going to grow wider. If it's like I repent and go back, repent and go back, and there's no change at all, that's not repentance. Think about it this way. Did you ever realize that both Judas and Simon Peter do virtually the same thing? Yeah, there's some differences, but virtually they both betray and sell Jesus out. One does it for his reputation, another one does it for 30 pieces of gold. So what happens? They both actually have remorse. Don't miss this. Judas Iscariot, he does have remorse. He does. He was grieved over it and he took those 30 pieces and what did he do? He threw it back to the officials like, I have betrayed innocent blood. That is remorse. But he just never understood actually how to repent like Peter did. They both betrayed, they both were remorseful. One ended up going out and hanging himself in his defeat, in his shame. The other one ended up being the leader of the early church, being used by God in amazing ways. And the question is, which one do you wanna be? Man, I wanna be the one that understands the gospel enough to say, you know what? Uh, The gospel is not about, it's not about what I've done. It's not about what I can't happen. And the more I progress in the gospel, the more as we say, we run to the Lord with our sin. I'll give you one example before we go to this next one. Sometimes do a little study on the difference between when Peter first sees Jesus and then in this scene right here. Because I'll tell you what, they're very similar in so many ways. Look back. You know when Peter meets Jesus, he's out on a boat, or the first time this happens, he's out on a boat, and he's out on a boat, 
He's like, how's the fishing going? Fishing's going bad. Throw your net on the other side of the boat. They bring in this haul of fish. And what does Peter say? At that instance, Peter, seeing the glory of God in Jesus, what does he say? He says, Lord, get away from me for I am a sinful man. Get away from me. I am a sinful man. In other words, when he was confronted by his sin, but he didn't know the gospel early on, what did he say? He's like, man, God is holy. I am not. Please get away from me. Scene happens here and you can see his progression. Same thing happens. He's out on a boat. He's out fishing. He's got no fish. Throw it on the other side. He brings in a haul of fish. And what does he do? He jumps in the water and he can't get to Jesus fast enough. That's the way you know if you know the gospel or not. Because when you sin, when you are not saturated in the gospel, you're like, get away from me. I've disappointed God. I don't want him to see this. But when you know the fact that Jesus lived the life you were supposed to live, died in your place, rose from the grave, and if you're in Christ, he calls you his son or his daughter, then what do you do? You run and go, man, I messed up, but you love me. That's why I always say, religion, you run from God in your shame. With the gospel, you run back to God in repentance. And you got to know the difference between those two. And so when you look at repentance, you're like, what can happen? What can happen? Again, it's the funnel of God's grace, but here's what the the joy is at the end. Look what he does to him. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said, this is like John's commentary to what's going on. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. You're like, Bruce, that doesn't look like great news. But here's what's going on. Remember what he says first for that. He's like, you follow me. First words to Peter. First words to Peter when he called him, he said what? Follow me. What's he saying? He's saying, what you had that call before you messed up, I'm calling you to that same thing. I am restoring you, restoring you. And then he says, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, which is basically you disciple people who also follow me. He's like, let's go back to the original call I had on your life. Now here's the question on the floor. How did did Jesus change Peter to go from the shaky guy who denies him in front of middle school teenagers three times, and then fast forward, he ends up preaching to thousands of people saying, you nailed him to the cross, repent, and 3,000 people get saved. How do you go from that guy to this other guy? I promise you, it wasn't some new doctrine he learned. Oh, I just never thought about that. It wasn't like a sermon that he heard from Jesus. Hey, here's four steps to avoid suffering. That's not what it was at all. What was it? It was an experience of the grace of God and the gospel in his own life. And he finally, and you can see this progression in his life. He understands, you know what? It's not about, do I stand up? It's that Jesus stood up. It's not that I'm gonna live the perfect life. It's that Jesus lived the perfect life. It's just that when he said, it is finished, that counted for me. Later on in his epistle, 1 Peter, he says this, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Feudal means zero. It means unsatisfying, unsatisfactory. Not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without 
blemish or spot. This is like, this is like the drum, this is the nail we've been hammering for years now. And it's so, cause we always, it's like Martin Luther said, we drift toward a works righteousness. We drift toward that. If you don't take some action, you will drift toward that. So people, you gotta understand, God did not just forget about our sin. He didn't just forget about it. He didn't just brush it aside. He actually defeated it and then paid for it. Because what people will say is, you know what? God can't forgive me or God can't forgive this. God can't do, and whatever this is, I know it runs the gamut. I understand for the most part, I've kind of lived a Pollyanna, Mayberry kind of life for the most part, but I've been doing this long enough to know also that in the seats today, there is some deep shame of stuff you hope to God it never comes out. And what at some point you've got to be able to say is, Jesus, you know all things. Whether it's that affair, whether it's that abortion, whether it's that whatever, you've got to be able to say, you know what? He doesn't just, he doesn't just brush it aside. He doesn't just ignore it. We don't just build it back. He pays for it. Now, sometime, and I'll probably get an email. It's like, well, when you tell people that you can't outsend the cross, you can't outsend the cross, then they'll just go out and sin all they want. That's called license. And you don't even understand the gospel if you think, you know what? Because I can get forgiven and because Jesus has paid for my sin, I'm going to actually go out and sin all I want. You know, that's ridiculous. You really don't understand it. It's what the apostle Paul said in Romans five, going into Romans six. It's like, what shall we say? Shall we continue to sin so that grace may increase? And then he says, Magenetai, God forbid, may it never be. Closest thing to cussing in the New Testament that you got. God forbid that you would think. Because what happens is the gospel is, you know what? I'm not the boss of me. Repentance is I'm not the boss of me. That guy on the cross is the boss of me. The one that went to the tomb and rose from the grave, he is the boss of me. That's called liberty. That's called, you know what Jesus did on the cross counted for me somehow. And I know some of you are like, I still struggle with shame. I still, I'm a Christian. I know Jesus. I've walked with him, but it's so roller coaster. It's up and down. And every time I'm about to take some steps forward with the Lord, then I get reminded of my past and kind of the junk that I've got back there. And I just, every step forward seems like two steps backwards. And I'm always kind of wrestling with that. And what you have got to understand is like, because you're like, I try to talk to him and I try to tell myself what God has done. And what you have to understand is you can't just, when those things come up, you don't just go, you know what, I'm just going to rationalize it or I'm going to talk with them. You've got to have a louder voice speaking into that. When that voice of condemnation comes, you have got to be able to speak the voice of the gospel in there. I mean, I'll give you, an ex- I'll give you one last example. I told you this a couple years ago, but when my boys were younger and they played sports, I remember I... Uh, especially uh, Tyler, he played basketball and I coached a few of his basketball teams. And uh, I would get in these, they always played on Saturday, right? And sometimes back to back to back to back games. And they had pretty good attendance. I mean, people would show up and you got these people thinking they're, you know, got the next MJ or the next LeBron and that's that. And so those parents were vociferous in their opinions, right? Even when the kids were on the court, and so what happened is you get in this gym and he got all this noise and then he got these parents like, run this play, run that play, take him, Johnny, da-da, all that stuff. I had to figure out, what I found out is on Sunday mornings, oftentimes I'm like, why do I have no voice left? Why am I so raspy? Because it finally dawned on me all day Saturday, I am screaming at the kids, not angry, but just because 
Joe Perrin over here trying to tell him plays. And I'm like, no, Johnny, four, four, not one. Your dad can't count to four, okay? Just run the play we talked about. And you do that all day long. And what happens is I'm trying to get my voice over the voices of all this chatter going on in the gym. Same way. You can have a lot of chatter like this in your life all the time, all right? You've got no hope. You disappointed God. You got all those things that are going on in your head all the time. And if you don't learn to be able to say, I've got to listen to a louder voice. So when you hear, you're no good, uh, there's no hope, you've got to be able to go, you know what? My Bible says that there is actually no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. When it's like, you know what? You blew it. There's no future. God's not going to use you. And then you've got to go back, well, my Savior, my God says, I know the plans that I have for you to give you a future and to give you a hope. He's like, man, God's disappointed in you. God's really disappointed in you. You've got to be able to go back and let's just say, you know what, where the Bible says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And if you're in Christ, that means Jesus's resume got put to your resume. And it's like, you know what? I'm his beloved son. I'm his beloved daughter. That's who I am. And what God has said over you, don't let somebody else say something different. And so when you blow it, and hopefully it's before you get out of the parking lot, but when you blow it, you got to be able to say, all right, I regret I did that. And there's some remorse. That's going to be massive remorse on massive things. It might be a little bit less remorse on something smaller. But brother, there's got, you've got to learn the discipline of repentance. Repentance is your friend. Repentance is your friend. Again, I think Luther said it as well. The Christian life is simply to begin, a, begin again. Begin again. It's not again perfection. What's, this, what's the proverb say? The, the righteous man, he falls seven times, but he gets back up. He falls seven times. What happens is he just lifts it up. All right, I messed up. I'm going to go back to my father and we're going to do a little bit better next time. And what happens is the gap, the gap starts to widen. And you know what? It's been six months since I lost my temper with my spouse. Well, that's awesome because it used to be like six minutes. Then it became six days. Then it became six weeks. And now it's like six months. You know what that's called? That's called sanctification. 